Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. I want to ask you today, have you uh, ever had a night that seemed extra long, uh, where you're just waiting and waiting for morning to come at last and signal that that night's over? I remember a night a bit like that, uh, I guess it's probably close to 20 years ago now, but uh, I lived in Minot, had a friend that uh, he and I thought we just needed to get away for an overnight or someplace and uh, take a break. And it was October, we decided to uh, go camping up in the um, Turtle Mountains, which is just north of Botano, North Dakota. And uh, we each had a little bit of camping gear at that point, and, and uh, uh, he offered to provide his four-man tent and a couple of cots, and I brought some other things and so on. And, and uh, knowing that it was October, we brought extra clothes so we could dress in layers, and the uh, temperature dropped below freezing that night. And it ended up, that I didn't know this, and I don't know if he didn't check his tent or not, but anyway, there wasn't even a rain fly over his tent, and, and so there was, uh, all the heat in the tent was going right out the top. Uh, in the middle of the night, uh, or I should say by halfway through the night, I had probably about every available stitch of clothes on I could, I think there were at least five layers on top, and um, had a stocking cap over my head, I was hunkered down in my sleeping bag and, and still just shivering. Uh, occasionally, I would manage to drift off to sleep for a few minutes and, and uh, wake up many times during the night, look at my watch, and just wonder how much longer till morning. Well, I woke up about 5 a.m. to some pounding outside the tent. And when I realized what it was here, it was pitch dark still out, but, but Scott had had enough, and he was out there chopping wood to get a fire started so we could warm up at last. Uh, after that... Um, long night and surviving that, uh, both of us kind of went all out on buying some more camping gear, including I think we both ended up getting some army issue down-filled sleeping bags so that that would never happen again. Well last week uh, we looked in Amos chapter 8 and we talked about the end of some things and, and Amos had made clear that along with the end of summer was also coming the end for the nation of Israel as the Assyrian army was going to come in and overtake them. And this would result in also then the end of happy festivals, the end of life for many, and also for, for quite a number of years, the, the end of hearing God's word from his prophets. There would be, as I mentioned last week, there, this 400-year-long gap between the last of the Old Testament prophets and the time when John the Baptist would come on the scene and preach God's word and point to Jesus as the promised Savior. The first uh, eight chapters of Amos that we've looked at, you, you might say, have been pretty dismal. Mostly declare, declaring God's coming judgment on a nation that had turned its back on God. Now as we get into this last chapter, chapter 9, we do get a glimpse of hope. The long night of darkness would someday be over, and God would bring restoration for Israel and for all mankind, and he would bring it through the promised Messiah. And so now as we read in chapter 9 today, uh, you'll see the first 10 verses really continue to declare God's coming judgment, 
But then, as we get to, chapter, or to verse 11, listen for those words of hope that, that uh, we see there. I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word now as we read. Amos chapter 9 begins verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the pillar capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will put to death the rest of them with a sword, and they will not have a fugitive who will flee, nor a survivor who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will track them down and take them from there. And though they hide themselves from my sight on the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent from there, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it will kill them. And I will set my eyes against them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it quakes, and all those who live in it mourn, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, and who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtar and Arameans from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will eliminate it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally eliminate the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword, those who say the catastrophe will not overtake or confront us. On that day, I will raise up the fallen shelter of David and wall up its gaps, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes will overtake him who sows the seed, when the mountains will drip grape juice, and all the hills will come apart. And I will also restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the desolate cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and, and drink their wine, and, and make gardens and eat their fruit, and also plant them on their land. And they will not be uprooted again from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the prophet Amos, the things that we have learned from him as we have looked at the nation of Israel and the history of that situation. And Lord, as we've been reminded also that you are still at work in the lives of nations and of us as individuals. We pray that today you would speak to each of our hearts, Lord, about our relationship with you, and you would draw us to look to Jesus, the promised Messiah. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So what is Amos talking about here in verse 1 as he says, strike the capitals? Well, he's not referring to the capital city of Israel, but rather actually to an architectural feature of a shrine that King Jeroboam I had built for worship of false gods in Samaria. Capitals then are, are the knobs at the top of a fancy pillar that, that would then hold up the roof of that shrine. 
And, and the thresholds then would be at the bottom of those pillars. And, and so Amos is declaring here that this whole shrine will come tumbling down when the Assyrian army comes in. And no one will escape that army. Either they will be killed or they'll be taken captives. And as we hear God's word through Amos today, then there, there's application for us too individually and for our nation as well. And so what do we learn from this chapter? I see especially four things that are the highlights there in your outline. First of all this, there is no place where one can go to escape the judgment of God. And Amos gives some examples then in verses 1 through 4 there. First of all, not the altar. He's saying here there, there is no religious refuge from God, no hiding behind the pretense of an outward religious practice. Amos saw a vision of King Jeroboam standing by the altar to burn incense. And, and, and like King Jeroboam the, the first um, before him, this Jeroboam also didn't really care about following God. But he liked to use outward religious practice as kind of a prop in order to legitimize his rule. And unfortunately, this still goes on today, sometimes maybe even with presidents and other government leaders in our own country. You see, King Jeroboam I, about 150 years before this one, Jeroboam II, what was really an illegitimate king. He had led an uprising of the ten northern tribes and usurped the throne then from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And that's when it was divided then into Israel and Judah. And, and so to keep his followers then from having a change of heart and deciding to go back down to Jerusalem for religious holidays and back then to King Rehoboam, the real king, he, he then had set up this false place of worship and worship of a false god up there in his new capital city of Samaria. And I, I like what uh, Matthew's commentary said as he sums this up here. He says we have here then a, a counterfeit feast on a counterfeit altar to prop up a counterfeit monarchy. And so God is saying through Amos here, your fake worship won't protect you from my judgment. There's no place you can go to escape it. And he goes on in verse 2 then to mention not Sheol or, or to heaven. And that is, and there is no supernatural refuge for you either. Um, Sheol is the place of the dead spirits. And, and heaven we know. And so the, those are the realms of the spirit world. And he says here in verse 2 then, though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. There's no place you can go to escape God's judgment. Not the summit of Carmel or the floor of the sea. That is, there's no natural refuge on this earth either. Mount Carmel, there in the um, Middle East, that, that's a, a high peak that overlooks then on the one side yeah, on, uh, to the west the Mediterranean Sea. And if you look to the other side you see the great Jezreel Valley to the east. The floor of the sea, well that would be like the lowest, most hidden place on earth imaginable. But look what he says here in verse 3. And though they hide themselves from my sight at the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent from there and it will bite them. There's no place you can go to escape the judgment of God. Not even the bottom of the deepest sea, because the one that you're trying to escape from commands even the deep sea creatures, and so you're out of luck. That's what he's saying. And remember, Jonah. 
and the large fish that swallowed him after he tried to run from God. There's no place you can go to get away from God's judgment. Not even when taken into captivity by enemies and far from your home country. There's no political refuge for you. Even when an enemy nation captures and takes them away into exile, just because you're alive instead of being killed in battle like many of your um, fellow countrymen had been, doesn't mean that you're now safe from God because God can cause them to die in exile just as well as in battle. And so what does all this mean for you and I today? We cannot escape the all-seeing eye of God either. Nor can we somehow succeed in running from his judgment that we deserve. There is no refuge for us in outward religion. It it won't help for us even to go to every church service around or, or to recite the rosary every day. We're still sinners deserving God's judgment. There's no supernatural refuge for us. Even if we could somehow get ourselves up to the highest heaven or the deepest hell, there would be no escaping the judgment of God there. There's no natural refuge on the earth. Even climbing Mount Everest or or taking a submarine to the bottom of the deepest part of the Atlantic Ocean won't hide ourselves from the hound of heaven. There's no political refuge for us either. Aligning ourselves with a political party on one side or the other of the impeachment proceedings will not make things right with God for any one of us, nor will following some political ideology of some other nation or people group. There is no place one can go that's too remote for God to reach us. And that should either greatly disturb us or mightily comfort us. It should disturb anyone who's trying to live in open rebellion against their creator because he will continue to pursue and to deal with them. But it should also bring comfort then to the hearts of any of us who give up hiding from him and who then humbly come to him in confession of our sins and trusting in God's remedy for our sin, the forgiveness that he's offered in his son, Jesus Christ. There are other reasons, there are reasons I should say that as we look in verse five and six here, that God is is named the Lord God of hosts. He controls the terrestrial and the celestial, the the land on the earth and the sky above the earth. Verse 5 says he touches the land so that it quakes. He's certainly able to bring judgment any time, any way he chooses. Um, He has at his disposal then all of the powers of the universe. He, He can just reach out his hand and cause a devastating earthquake. And he also, according to verse 6, builds and controls the upper atmosphere. And there it describes how he calls uh, for the waters of the sea, and they evaporate and they form the clouds, and then move over the land and pour out that precipitation on the earth. He is the Lord God of hosts over all of the universe. And he then has the right to judge its inhabitants. And the nation of Israel certainly deserved his righteous judgment And if they did, then we in America do as well. Thirdly, even though the nation of Israel strayed from God, his plan for them was not completely thwarted. God does not force people to believe in or follow him, but he still is sovereign over them all. Verse 7 reminds us that his sovereignty is over the surrounding nations. 
and that he does things for them or with them for the sake of Israel. The people of Israel considered themselves to be God's special people. But here God says to them to have broken that covenant he had with them, you're no better than all the other nations. Yes, God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and he moved them into the promised land. But they were not the only people group that God moved for his purposes. And he mentions here then the Philistines and the Arameans also who were relocated at God's hand. And so now Israel should not think of themselves as somehow they, can, they get a pass while they continue to live a sinful rebellion against God. Verse 8 reminded that his judgment on sin is there, and yet he also has care for the remnant. Verse 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and that includes then Israel. But he goes on to say, and, and I will eliminate it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally eliminate the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. God had a plan to, to yet preserve a remnant of his believing people. And that plan then, as we look on here, see, uh, would involve kind of a sifting for Israel. Verse 9 says, For behold, I am commanding that I will shake the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will fall to the ground. And so Amos is saying that, you know, kind of like this, and I think of you farmers here, um, your combine, it sifts out the kernels of grain and then sends the rest out the back of the combine. And he's saying, so God will do. And, and now you who are farmers, uh, you know this, so that when you drive your combine down that field, there's some blow-by, isn't there? Some of the wheat ends up going out the back with the chaff. And it's wasted. And, and we know that because then later you'll see it. Uh, some green coming up in those rows. But you see, when God does the sifting, and he does the sifting with people, that doesn't happen. That's what he's saying here. All of the chaff is thrown out, but not one pebble of good grain slips by. He's able to preserve all whose heart is right with him, and he's also able to bring judgment on all who turn from him. And so what we see here then in these last five verses of the book of Amos is that even though God would bring this harsh judgment on the nation of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians, and that judgment was inescapable, still he also promised that he'd restore Israel. There was coming a new day, a, a day when God would turn things around for his people Israel, a, a day when there would be an end to a number of negative things that came because of their sin and disobedience, and also a day with new beginnings for them and for us as well. And so, look with me at those last verses there, verse 11. And there we see the end of the eclipse and the coming of the Messianic King. Now, when we think of an eclipse, a solar eclipse hides the light of the sun for a time. Well, the Old Testament ends with kind of an eclipse of leadership. That 400 years of silence when there were no prophets declaring God's word and also, it was the end of the Jewish kings after that Assyrian conquest. But, but God declares here there's a new day coming. Verse 11, on that day I will raise up the fallen shelter of David. God would one day then raise up a, a king like no other, one that would come through the bloodline of King David. And when we get to the New Testament, we look at those genealogies in, in Matthew and Luke, we see it there. 
that, that that genealogy shows us Jesus, the promised Messiah, came through David's bloodline. On that day when he, when, when he would come on the scene then, when Jesus would come, he would also bring then the end of separation. Verse 12 talks about all nations called by my name. That new day, off in the future for Amos and his contemporaries, has come. And in Jesus Christ, then, though we still have national borders, they no longer need to divide us, nor ought the color of our skin to do so. The way is now open for all people groups to come to God through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, if you glance in Acts chapter 15, there, there um, James, one of the disciples of Jesus, actually quotes from Amos here, these verses, and declares again there that the gospel of forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ is now open for all, Gentiles and Jews alike, all who call on his name. And furthermore, the coming of the Messiah would bring also then the end of the curse. Look at verse 13 there. And the earth and all creation would be liberated. And this is where I think I need to just stop and explain something there. Um, the Old Testament prophets spoke, and, and they spoke um, about both the first and the second coming of Jesus, but, but it all looked maybe as one to them because it was off in the distance for them, ahead of them in the future. But, but we today now live in the middle of that, between the time of Jesus' first coming to the earth and now waiting then for his return. And when he comes back and he ushers in the final judgment for followers of Christ, it, it will also be then a day of great rejoicing. And he says in verse 13 here, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. And the one who treads grapes will overtake him who sows the seed. And the mountains will drip grape juice. Farmers, I want you to imagine what it would be like if you could just skip winter. And you'd be able then to plant a new crop as soon as you harvested the last one. So you have the hired man coming behind the combine ready to drop seed again, right behind the combine. That's kind of the picture, the bounty of the new heaven and new earth. And even the mountains then dripping with bountiful crops. Creation which was cursed by mankind's fall into sin will then be restored. Herbicides won't be needed. Machinery won't break down. Farming will be fun, a true joy. This restoration also would mean, verse 14, the end of disappointment and frustration. God's people redeemed. You know, sin currently brings with it enslavement. And Amos points to a day when we'll be freed from captivity of sin. We who know Jesus Christ have that in part in that we know that we can have full forgiveness for all of our failures and rebellion in Jesus Christ, but we still end up living with daily temptations to sin and consequences on our lives and our relationships when we sin. And sin also currently brings then with it all kinds of disappointments and frustrations. But Amos points ahead to the day when sin and its effects will be completely destroyed. There'll be no more need for any kind of bitterly fought elections. No more political controversies or impeachment proceedings. No more taxes. 
No more tensions between co-workers and parishioners or, or family members, but rather peaceful living and enjoying the fruits of our labor. And then lastly, this restoration will bring with it, you look at verse 15, the end of insecurity, a land that is a permanent inheritance. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not be uprooted again from their land, which I have given, says the Lord your God. As I look at that last verse, I, I want to recognize, many understand it to be specifically taking, or, or I should say, talking about than a physical restoration of, of a land for the Jewish people. And, and having visited Israel a couple years ago myself, uh, it certainly seems to me that God has given the Jewish people back a land that is richly blessed by him. And, and so it may be in part that Amos was pointing ahead even to some of that. At the same time, we need to recognize that he is speaking of a permanent land for the people of Israel. And I think we need to recognize that, that the only true permanent land for God's people will be heaven itself. The ultimate promised land that will never be taken away from us. And there at last will be an end to our insecurities of wondering, you know, how long is our nation going to last? Or, or more personally, well, when should I buy or sell a house? Or or will I ever get that dream place in the country? Or, or when should I move on to go to more school or take a new job or join the army or retire? There's coming a day when all of those questions and those insecurities will be behind us. Matthieu in his commentary closes with this here. He says, can we be absolutely certain that the time will come when the king will reign over a worldwide company, when, when sin's presence, power, and penalty will have been removed from the scene, when abundance, satisfaction, and security will be the order of the day? Is it too idealistic to be real? Too good to be true? Too impossible to ever be achieved? No, because this is not a vision of what would be ideal, nor an aspiration after such, but it is a pledge from God that it will happen. And notice how Amos ends his book. He says, says the Lord God. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word through this humble prophet Amos that you called to leave his sheep and, and to preach to a nation that was turning its back on you and had gone far down the road away from you to the point of where you had to bring judgment upon them. Lord, we thank you for the word here that reminds us of how you deal with nations. And Lord, as we think of our own nation, we have great concerns because we see that it is drifting further and further away from you too. And Lord, we can get all worried about what's going to happen. Uh, but thank you, Lord, that you remind us that it's all in your hands. And also that that utopia that we long for is not here on this earth, but it is someday in heaven with you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live our lives here um, in daily repentance and faith, that we would be part of the remnant that, that believes in and trusts in you no matter what we see happening around us. 
And we pray that you would encourage us to, to walk by faith each day and to still declare then the message of hope that we have, that we have found in, in Jesus Christ, a forgiveness of all of our sin and eternal life in your presence someday. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us to, to live with that in our sights at all times, in all that we go through in this life. And Lord, if there be somebody here today who has not known for sure of a relationship with you, uh, we, we pray that even your, your word today, reminding them that there's nowhere they can go to escape from you, and your all-seeing eye, Lord, would lead them to then be willing to face their sin and, and look to Jesus and find the assurance of forgiveness there too. Uh, we ask that you'd have your way in each of our hearts and lives today and in this congregation. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.